know, we're created for relationship. All morning, we've celebrated that in here. We've uh, sung about and witnessed the reality of our relationship with God. We also have talked about and uh, seen graphically on video our responsibilities of relationship with other people. It's just part of how we're made, made for relationship. Not, uh, well, a number of years ago now, uh, there was a conference that was being held and a physician was addressing a group of people, room not much different than this one. And through the course of it all, he talked about the, uh, well, the problems with the stuff that we eat. And he talked about how anything without the wonder of how God made us, anything that we eat could be bad for us. And then he kind of got on that kick where, you know, the modern health food kind of kick. And he said, you know, red meat's terrible for you. He said, soft drinks that people drink and consume in mass quantities, uh, they eat the lining of your stomach up. He said that uh, Chinese food is loaded with MSGs, and even the drinking water that we have has all kinds of bacteria in it. He just kind of laid out a scenario that just one thing after another, nothing that you put in your mouth is good for you. And as he worked through all of that, he finally came to the, he said, but there's one food that if we eat this one food, it hurts us for decades to come. Eating it one time, he said, is enough to do damage to your body from this point forward until you die. He said, does anybody out there know what that one food is? And nobody knew. Well, at least they didn't act like they knew. They looked at me like, I mean, they looked at him like you're looking at me right now. Like, tell us the answer. And finally, there was this one guy, he was sitting on the front row, 75 years old. A pillar of the group, of the community. Everybody knew who he was. And he raised his hand kind of sheepishly, and the doctor said, Sir, you know the answer. What is the one food that if you eat of it one time, it affects your life detrimentally from that point forward? What is that one food? And the man said, Wedding cake. (laughs) We're created for relationship. Do you think that that guy had a positive experience in his relationship of being married? You know, as a matter of fact, if I were to poll this audience, well, I would have to get you, especially you married people, I'd have to get you alone in a room to get you to be totally honest. Would you say that your marriage is a great example of what relationship ought to be as God intended? If we expanded it beyond just your marriage and into your family unit... How positive are those relationships for you? If we took it outside of the family unit and pushed it to the community at large, or let's even take it beyond that to the people that you don't even know, how much does relationship, and especially healthy relationship, mark your life? The fact of the matter is that for most of us, we have elements of our relationship life that are less than stellar. We got really honest with ourselves. We would find that there are those things about our relationships that really don't pull us together. They push us apart. Jesus recognizes that reality of our lives. 
And as he started to move us through this Sermon on the Mount, and we got to this point where we're looking at the model prayer, and he got to where he's teaching about what our prayer lives need to be, one of the things that he inserts into it here towards the back end of it is this idea of relationships. Now, I know it doesn't look like this on the surface, but when we get right down to it, what he's talking about now are key elements for us in our relationships. There are two primary arenas of relationship for us. There's the vertical relationship that is our relationship with a holy God. Only possible through Jesus Christ, but possible because of Jesus Christ. And that's why when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all your mind, all your strength, with everything of who you are. Love God. Put him first. That's relationship. We're created for that relationship first. He went on to say the second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so he infers with that, in fact, he endorses with that, that every part of our life comes down to relationship. The problem with that is that sin tries to do something different with us. The nature of sin is that it pushes us at the point of our desire to be God. And it moves us to an individual approach to living. It's about me. It's about my plans. It's about what I want. And sin is so good at what it does that it gives us great success when we push for individualism and ultimately it serves to isolate us. And so we find ourselves in marriages with no connection. We find ourselves in a sea of people and yet totally alone. Consider the words of a guy. His name is Mark. Don't let that throw you. Mark Barton. He wrote these words on July the 19th, 1999. Here's what he said. I have been dying since October. I wake up at night so afraid, so terrified that I, it's not even possible that I could be that afraid while I was awake. It has taken its toll. I have come to hate this life and this system of things. I have come to have no hope. Now, I would say to you that across across America, churches all over our country today are full of people who feel exactly like that. Isolated, created for relationship, but somehow it just doesn't seem to connect. The reason Mark's words are significant for us today is because on that day, July the 19th, 1999, when he wrote those words, he had already killed his wife and his two children. After writing those words, he went to his place of business in Atlanta and he gunned down nine co-workers. Broken relationships, broken people. Is it possible today that in this room we have broken people? Is it possible in a room like this that there would be people who, even though there's, you know, ministerially speaking, four or five thousand people here, that they feel like they're totally alone, broken, separated, isolated? That's what sin does to us. And Jesus knew that. And so he builds into this teaching on prayer a simple statement. It is so simple that we tend to just read right over it. You know me better than that by now. After a year, we're going to take three weeks to look at it. Matthew chapter 6, 
Look with me at this passage. We're in the model prayer. We know how the model prayer reads. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Boy, I hate to slip into King James English. I don't, I don't use the word thy ever in a week until I get up to preach sometimes. Our Father, the one in heaven, let your name be holified. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. And all of those things on earth, just like they're done in heaven. And Give us this day our daily bread. We talked about that last week, the physical part of life. We depend on God for the physical parts of our lives. But now he turns to the relationship parts of our life. It's a spiritual thing, but it's not just a spiritual thing. Give us this day our daily bread. And then what does he say? And forgive us our... And now see, see, nobody knows how to answer that. Because in our minds, we want to say trespasses. But, and that's true if you're reading out of Luke... Uh, or a different translation of this one. This translation says, and forgive us our debts. Don't let it throw you. It's essentially the same idea in Aramaic, which is probably how Jesus spoke these words in the first place. The word debts just is, is equal to the word sins. Forgive us our sins, the debt that we pay or that we owe to God because of our sinfulness. Forgive us of those things. But see, then Jesus complicates it. We all love to pray and forgive me of my debts. But then it, Jesus just kind of jumps right in the middle of us. And also, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, we're going to come back to that. As a matter of fact, you know that that last little statement there, this is the only part of the sermon, of, excuse me, of the model prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the only little phrase that Jesus elaborates on immediately after the prayer. Verses 13 and 14, you look there, or excuse me, 14 and 15, you'll look, and we'll get to that sooner or later. But what I want you to get from this first is this basic idea. It starts with that understanding that sin in our lives isolates us, that move to individualism ultimately is so successful that we find ourselves isolated. Sin, when it has its way with you, will leave you alone and without hope. If you don't hear anything else I say today, at least start by hearing that. Sin breaks us, and it breaks relationship. The basic thing that we're created for Sin does a number on it. So what do you do with that? Jesus says when you pray, you deal with that problem. God, forgive me, please, for the sin in my life. But also help me to forgive other people. One of the biggest issues in churches across our land today is that we have Christian people who refuse to forgive. So go with me to Luke chapter 15. Now, we're through in Matthew for the day. We'll come back to it, you know, but not today. I want us to go to a passage of Scripture that Jesus gives. It's a parable. It's a story that Jesus tells. The people around him would have been immediately tied into it. It's common, ordinary, everyday, first-century kind of living with some notable exceptions. And it's the exceptions that cause them to take note. So let's look at this together. It is the parable of the prodigal son. So we read in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. And he said, that's Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. 
And the younger of them said to his father, Father, forgive me the share of, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between the two sons. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Jesus' listeners would have cringed at that. Pigs. Verse 16, And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, (laughs) that's a pregnant phrase right there. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, that is the other son, was angry and refused to go in, and his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice he doesn't even call him my brother, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes? You killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to the son, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I want us to look very quickly at the three characters, three main characters in this. And I want you to find yourself in them. First of all, we have the prodigal son. Now, this starts in verse 12. The key statement here is where he says to his dad, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. In first century Jewish life, that was equivalent to the young son going to the father and saying, I wish you were dead. Now, I never said that to my dad. I thought it many times. Because I lived a life that was separated from him. And he never let me get away with that. The son comes and he says, Dad, with no due respect, I wish you were dead. 
In the process of doing that, what he has also done is he has abandoned everything about his heritage. His family heritage, the name that's there. He's stepped totally out of first century appropriate behavior. And he said, I don't want anything to do with you. And by the way, I don't want anything to do with your religion either. We know that because he goes from there to a foreign country. It's a foreign country that the Jews would have hated because they deal with pigs. The most unclean animal as far as the Jew was concerned. And this kid goes to where they raise them. Not only do they raise them, he finds himself in a position where he has to raise them. And he gets so hungry because, by the way, remember what I said, sin ultimately has its way with you. And you'll come to the end of yourself somewhere if you choose to live in a relationship separated from God. That's the nature of sin. And the worst part of that is that all of eternity spent in hell is an eternity spent separated from the presence of God. Sin does its work in masterful ways. Nobody wants to go there. Why would you ever say to somebody, you go to hell? Some of you are more concerned that I said that here than the fact that people say it all the time. Separated from God. Separated from the one who created us, who loves us. Sin does its work. And our community is full of people who are this prodigal son. Walked away. No hope of return. Individualism ultimately results in isolation. Is it possible that that's you today? Is it possible that you wandered in here thinking it was just going to be another Sunday at church? Through the singing, the message already that's been out, something about this day makes you really uneasy. Sin separates us. You know, churches are full. Maybe this church is full of people today who walk in here and they're so separate from God, they don't believe God could ever hear from them again. You know, in the days of my life when I chose to say to my family, I wish y'all were dead, didn't say it with my mouth, but I said it with my behavior. I was so into living the life that I had designed for me. I lived in the same town with my parents and didn't see them for six months. You know why? Because what they were threatened who I was trying to be. How are your relationships with people? Do you find yourself today with a group of people in your life? Maybe it's family members, maybe it's neighbors, maybe it's people of your past, and you hold them at arm's length and actually further than arm's length because you just don't want anything to do with them. You know, maybe the problem's not them. One of the things about guilt, you've heard me say it before, and bitterness, it's like taking poison and expecting the other person to die. It just doesn't work that way. We separate ourselves when we choose to live for self. It's possible that you're here today. You walked in here and things are not right in your life and you know it. Maybe you're the prodigal son. So my question to you is, how long will you live that way? How long will it be before you come to yourself, as it says, of that prodigal? How far do you have to go before you go home? I like that about this guy. 
with all of the stuff that he did wrong, he came to himself, it says, and he went home. You know what? He didn't have any guarantees when he went home. You know that in first century Jewish life, a father could have a formal ceremony where he cut his son off and said, you are no longer my son, and he had no ties to him ever again. This son didn't know if his father had done that or not. But he got miserable enough that he decided, I'm going to take my chances and go home. So whatever your hang-ups are about religion, hey, I don't blame you. I got serious hang-ups with religion. I think religion's kept more people out of the kingdom of God than anything else. This is not about religion. This is about relationship. We're, we're built, we're designed, crafted for relationship with God. But sin separates us and sin isolates us and sin will have its way with us. So if you're the prodigal today, how long before you go home? But The problem with this passage and the way we usually look at it is that it says there's a prodigal son. The fact of the matter is there's two prodigal sons here. You notice that? The second guy, now this comes in verse 25 through 30. I'm not going to take time to read it all again, but if you go back and read through 25 through 30 again, what you're going to find is this prodigal son had a preoccupation with self. Oh man, now see now the preacher starts getting real pushy with church people. You know that we can buy into a level of thinking that essentially says, I got it together. I got my salvation in the bank. Fire insurance. Drove by a church not long ago, and on their marquee out front, it said, we offer fire insurance. And I thought to myself, how tragic that we reduce life to avoiding something. Christian life is much more than just avoiding hell. Hey, I'm all for avoiding hell, okay? That's done for me. I don't have to worry about that. I hope that's true of you. If it's not, then come home, okay? Jesus died for you. But there's so much more than just avoiding hell. And this son, he's part of the household. He's still there. He's still building his future. But he's so preoccupied with himself that he can't seem to celebrate when somebody else comes home. This week, we saw, I told you earlier, over 20 kids make professions of faith, accept Christ as their Savior. I got to sit in the room with some of them when they were doing that. Let me tell you something. Bless, I hate to use church language, bless my socks off watching those kids as the light came on, spiritual light came on. Hey, I need that. <laughs> yes, you do. You know what? We train our people to make the decision and then live for self. It's like, okay, my fire insurance is in the bank, so now I can just do whatever I want. And that sin thing, that problem of individualism still haunts us, and it still isolates us. And so what happens is, we start, even though we got the fire insurance in the bank, then we start interpreting everything that happens to us through the filter of me. Well, this person over there said this, and that offends me. Not even about you. Well, it doesn't matter. Hurt my feelings. Well, grow up and get over it. I've been here a year and a day. Now I can say that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> this guy's just as prodigal as the first son. He's not living the life of relationship. 
Oh, he's still got a relationship with the father, but it's at odds. The reason it's at odds is because his relationship with his brother is at odds. Hello, church. We need to hear that in America today. I can't be in right relationship with my heavenly father if I refuse to be in right relationship with my brothers and sisters. I know some of you thinking you could have gone all year and not said that. Because you see, the truth of that puts us on the hot seat. Sin isolates us. Self becomes the filter through which we see and interpret everything around us. You ever notice how Christian people hold grudges against each other? Why do you think that is? Why is it that we don't let other people off the hook when we pray that God would let us off the hook? It's because we like to see people pay. True story. Occurred back in 1992. Excuse me, 82. This young boy, Kevin was his name, went out. He was 18 years old. He went out, got drunk, ran his car into the car of a young girl who was 17 years of age. She lost her life. Her family pushed it all through on the legal side. They didn't have to push it too much because the district attorney picked it up. And they prosecuted him, and he was found guilty of vehicular manslaughter. And, uh, but the family sued him on civil level for well over a million dollars. When the case came up into court, they pushed forward a plea bargain, or they agreed to this on the front side, a, a counter, whatever you call it, legally. They said, we'll forego the over a million dollar claim we're asking for. We'll settle for a claim against him for $936. But the condition is that we want him on every Friday. You see, the wreck occurred on the first Friday of August. We want him on every Friday for 18 years to send us a check for $1. The judge pushed it. The boy pushed it. Why don't you just let me pay the $936? They said, you missed the point. The point is not the money. The point is we want you to remember every Friday what you did that one Friday. And you send us a dollar at a time every Friday for all of those years. That's us. When we're wronged, we like other people to pay. And Jesus says, and forgive us our debts... As we make other people pay theirs. Is that what it says? Now, you're going to have to stay with me because I'll throw stuff out there every once in a while that's wrong, okay? Forgive us our debts as we forgive others. Do you want God to forgive you on the level that you forgive people? We'll get to that. That's where those next two verses are going to come in, where Jesus gives commentary on what he's saying here. It's loaded for us. That's why we're going to look at this for three different weeks. But we start here in a picture of one who refuses to offer forgiveness, the second prodigal son. And it distances him from his brother. The last one I want you to see very quickly is the father. This, is, uh, this guy's different. He's not your typical first century Jewish dad. He does some things that are totally unorthodox for that society and that culture. For one thing, when the son comes and says, I wish you were dead, give me all of my inheritance, he gives it to him. 
That's highly unusual, maybe even unheard of. It was one of those elements in the story that Jesus puts in there, and it makes everybody stop and go, what, what did he just say? Not only that, we also, <laughs> we also find that this father is one who did not go through that ceremony I was talking about that cut his son off from that point forward. He had every reason to. The kid essentially went in and raided his bank account. And he continued to love him. And then beyond that, the father never stopped watching. I got to tell you, I love that part because I was the prodigal, the first one, for a long time. And the day came when I came to myself. And part of what I had to do was go talk to my parents and say, you know what? I've been wrong. And they could have said, yes, you have. You're not our son anymore. I'm grateful they didn't do that. This father also did something out of character. Matter of fact, nobody did this. He actually ran in public. For a first century Jewish adult male to run in public was unheard of. I love that part of their society. But he did. Now, what would cause him to do that? It was his love for his boy. You know, he also refused to rebuke the other son. He's justified in doing that, too. He gently pushed him to the truth and maintained the relationship. Sin separates. This father chose to operate in relationship. And in so doing, he moves us to do the same thing. And in him, we find a picture of God's love for us, but also the example of how we should love other people. But what if they don't come to themselves? What if they never say, I'm sorry for what they did wrong? You love them. (laughs) Well, preacher, you just don't get it. Okay, I don't get it. It doesn't matter. It's truth. You love them. You see, the fix... For the isolation that is caused by sin is to go home. You go home to the Father who loves you so much that he refuses to give you what you deserve if you'll just come and ask for forgiveness. A number of years ago, I found myself... Now, most of you wouldn't think it was any big deal, probably, if you knew about it. But I knew that there was something in my life that was wrong. And that I was living outside of God's plan in this one area of my life. I knew it. And as I continued, I struggled with the guilt of it. And I'd pray that surface-level prayer, God, forgive me. And then I would just hang on to it and say, no, you'd never forgive me for that. And I'd hang on to it. I knew that was part of my life. And so on this one, <laughs> this one particular day, I found myself in a gym. And I was strapped to one of these elliptical devices. Now, I call them torture things. They have them at Guantanamo, I'm understanding. Um, I was strapped to this thing doing cardio torture. And I had my little music player with me, and I was listening to this. And I just put it on shuffle, so I was listening to anything that happened to be on that. And I had all kinds of good Christian music. Um, Well, I won't even tell you what's on it. But I heard this one song... And I know that I'd heard it before because it was on there. But I'd never heard it before. It was by Casting Crowns. And as they started to sing, 
I heard God say this to me. Come home. I knew I was dishonoring God. And he broke through all of the stubborn rebellion that had isolated me. And he said, come home. The love of the Father is extravagant. We treat it as if it's just ordinary. I want you to listen to this. Just close your eyes and listen to the words, if you will.
How long has it been since that captured your relationship with God? Is it possible that you came in here a prodigal? Go home. God says, I love you. And if you're here today and you don't know that love, or maybe you know it, but you somewhere left it along the side of the road, go home. Let God capture your heart again. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask you to give us the ability to be dead-level honest with you, to see ourselves as you see us, to see where we've allowed sin to isolate us. We stand before you as needy people, stand before us as a sufficient God reach us through our sin the father who waits and comes running when we come home father we pray today would be the day of coming home for some people Pray these things in Jesus' name.